Thank you for the coffee. I guess Sam or whoever. All right, here we go. We've been doing a series called What in God's Earth is the Kingdom of Heaven? We are taking an approach that uh, we're for 14 chapters, which may be around 25 or 30 weeks. Uh, we are going to uh, cover uh, this in an introductory or survey way. And then I'm probably going to go back and make each chapter a specific series of its own. I think that where that comes out of is that in my mind, in my studying over the years, uh, since the spring of 1975, I've had the conviction that the overriding theme of all Scripture is God's plan to unfold and bring his kingdom to the earth fully. And so uh, if you want to understand the Scriptures... Understand that the, the scriptures are a progressive unfolding of the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, with that in mind, we are on chapter 3b. I'm trying to start each chapter with a question, and then, in, in the, then the title is the answer. The question for, for chapter 3 is, what was God's original plan? And then uh, the title is A Covenantal History of the Kingdom in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, um, this part, this chapter will be the longest chapter probably of the whole series because it's just not that easy to do a survey of the entire Old Testament uh, in 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, you could, but you would really be hitting just a few points. Now, I am only going to review for a minute, but on the front of your outline is the review from last week. And um, I want you to note that uh, our theme verse is, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's, uh, the kingdom of heaven and the, or the kingdom of God in the Bible is not anything to do with the afterlife or the next life. It includes that, but it's primarily the fact that God has a sanctuary in heaven. He has a city. He has various metaphors. He has a garden. He has a temple. And that temple, that city, that garden is completely filled with the manifest presence of God. And everything is done as God intended from all eternity. And God's intention in creating Eden was to bring that garden temple into the earth and he created four rivers in Eden that went out to the corners of the earth so that man could be fruitful and multiply as vice regents ruling under God and export that kingdom to the ends of the earth. However, this little thing called the fall of man happened in chapter 3, interrupted that plan. So, But God had already known that was going to happen, and his predetermined eternal plan took that into account, and he will not be thwarted. He's immutable. God's plan cannot change. So um, we, uh, in chapter 2, we gave several definitions of the kingdom of God, and I'm going to just give you a couple. Uh, the kingdom is both present and future. The kingdom of God is the reign, government, rulership, or dominion of God. It's that sphere or realm in which his good and perfect will is willingly enacted. That's so important. Because God's perfect will is done even by his would-be enemies. God has many enemies who are enemies in his heart, none who can mute or thwart his plan. All uh, uh, of his would-be enemies fulfill his plan in the end. 
Isn't that awesome? The kingdom of God is both present and future. It's not primarily heaven or the age to come, but it's a breaking into this present evil age with the power, order, spirit, and reign of the king now. Uh, God is eternally uh, purposed to express his reign, that is his kingdom, through a covenant nation, a people uh, that he's in covenant with, born of one regal head. As we're going to see today, that regal head was initially Adam. Uh, Christ became the last Adam who became that regal head. And so he has a kingdom that's coming into this earth of those who are born of the regal head, King Jesus, uh, and so forth. And ultimately, all of God's actions, his dealings, his designs, whatever he does is designed to produce that people and work in and through them by the power of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit, working through his church, his called out assembly, in order to bless the whole earth and serve the whole earth with his power, glory, presence, redemption, reconciliation, and all that he has in, in, in his heart to do what good and do well by man. Uh, he came, Jesus said, John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. So then last week in 3A, we looked at a few things. Uh, first of all, we looked at um, what covenants are. And we gave eight characteristics of covenants. All covenants identify the parties. They declare that God is bringing a new order. They declare that God has hierarchy in his people. Uh, they declare his ethical laws. They have oaths or vows of the covenant. They have ceremonies of celebration, signs and symbols. Uh, they have ceremonies of celebration that enact and reinforce the covenant, uh, I meant to say. Sanctions, uh, there's, there's blessings and curses uh, in every covenant of God, and they have provision for succession. God wants your spiritual children uh, to, to carry on to the next generation. The Bible is always about the seed. It's kind of interesting that, um, that most churches focus a lot of their ministry on the grown-ups that are vocationally solid because that's where the money is, of course. But the truth is, the Bible focuses its, the, its ministry on the next generation, always. It's always about the seed. And that's why I had the joyful privilege this week of getting a tour from Emily of the uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center that uh, both her and Lisa work at. I saw Lisa's desk. And... Uh, <laughs> um, it's why uh, Satan and his kingdom are always about trying to abort the next generation. But like in the days of Moses and in the days of Herod and Jesus, Pharaoh and Moses, it's always the ones that God allows to escape that will go on to establish his purpose. But Ultimately, in the eternal, spiritual, heavenly, the conflict of a culture of death versus a culture of life, a culture of, of human trafficking versus a culture of liberty and freedom is about this kingdom war. And as the church, we are called to enter into Christ's ministry that he proclaimed in his, right after he went through his fasting in the wilderness, he uh, then... The first thing he said in his public ministry was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He began to make disciples, and then he went to the synagogue, 
And he proclaimed to God's people, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do good things, to set the captives free, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, to bind up the brokenhearted and so forth. And any Christian is called to become part of a corporate people who have that kind of power and anointing that Jesus had. And without that, we can do nothing. And to to extend the light and power and glory of his manifest presence through proclamation of his kingdom, through living his kingdom together in community and service of one another, through uh, uh, reaching out as ambassadors with the the ministry of reconciliation to the lost, needy, and hurt about us, uh, around us, that is, in the, to take the, uh, taking the gospel into the poor and being concerned with social justice issues and from a biblical and Christian perspective, you are called to be a warrior, king, priest, uh, liberator. And Jesus was the first person who united the ministries of priest, prophet, warrior, king, etc., all in one, and his people are to, to carry that on. Uh, you, you are a priest, You're called to do spiritual warfare and make intercession for the people just like Jesus still does, according to 1 John 2. One and two, and Hebrews two passages in Hebrews tell us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, and that's one of the purposes of your life. We're going to talk more about that today. So, now, lastly, we ended the last week by saying, uh, talking about a biblical view of history, and you can can turn over now. But in terms of the biblical view of history. Uh, hopefully there's more than just me that likes to study history. Is there any other history buffs in our church that really like history? Oh, yeah, Emily, the classics and so forth. So uh, all histories are polemical. That is, every history is trying to sell you a worldview, a religion, uh, a values, a faith. And what is selected on the 6 o'clock news on Fox or CNN or whatever. Uh, I'm so glad I haven't had cable for five years now. I haven't seen Fox or CNN for five years. Thank you, Jesus. Anyway, so uh, it's like liberation. Uh, um, what they select, what pe- historians select, news people select, etc., is not neutral. It's based on the religion they're trying to sell you, the worldview that they're trying to brainwash you in. And so one of the things you want to raise your kids is to just be able to understand the presuppositions of various worldviews so that you're, you're discerning that when you watch a movie. Then you don't have to be so, you know, like a lot of people are like, why did you let your kids grow up watching the Star Wars movies when it was a, when it, it's obviously a Buddhist kind of worldview and so forth? Because they understood that from the time they were four. And I just like them to enjoy lightsabers, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and sh- shooting one another with lasers and stuff, you know, uh, all that good Christian stuff. No, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, every history is telling you something and God's history is a covenant kingdom history. He's not selecting everything that happened 
And in fact, you have to, in, in terms of what's going on in Mesopotamia, uh, you know, the Hittites are hardly mentioned, a few times they are. Uh, you know, what's going on with Cyrus, king of Persia, and, and all this kind of stuff, you, ha you have to, we, that they're really just the backdrop because what God is concerned about is his covenant people that he's calling out of darkness into light, that he's sanctifying, that he's filling with his spirit and his laws and his ways that, is pro that are progressively unfolding his kingdom. That's the Bible's total focus. Any other religion would have said, why do you major so much in Abraham or why 13 chapters focused on Joseph? 14 chapters. 37 through 50 of Genesis. Because Joseph was rejected by his brothers like unto Christ, uh, went down to Egypt. God always calls his son out of Egypt as he did with Israel, as he did with Abraham, Isaac. They all have to go to Egypt. They all have to be called out. I, out of Egypt, I have called my son, applies to all of God's covenant heads, all the way to Joseph and Mary. Joseph was instructed in a dream to flee to Egypt, to be delivered from Herod, and then to come back, because out of Egypt, he always calls his son. So that's why the Bible selects what it selects. Now, with that in mind, Let's uh, fl flip over and focus in on what was God's original plan and start doing a covenantal history of, the, of, the king, of kingdom highlights in the Old Testament. I have about 30 minutes left, and I'm going to try to get through the book of Genesis. Lord willing, please help me, Lord, to stay fo focused. Um, in Galatians, starting my an analysis of Gen Genesis by reading you a verse out of Galatians and a verse out of Hebrews. Go figure. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. This is so important. That right there just dismissed the whole concept called dispensationalism as erroneous thinking, if you know anything about what that is about. Well, in this series, we'll examine that in more detail later down the road. Even though it's a man's covenant, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. You know, I can't uh, buy a car, let's say sell a car to John Gray for $2,000, and then after we do the title work and so forth, say, oh, but you know, I meant $500 more for <laughs> uh, because it was blue or whatever reason. And he'd be like, wait, wait, we already made a covenant. We already made a, we, we already made an agreement. Money has been changed hands. Signatures have been signed. Blood has been spilled. <laughs> In the sense that your life actually went into that money you earned. And uh, so you can't change the covenant now. So now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. All through the Bible, it's about the seed. He does not say, and the seeds is referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. And those of us who are united in Christ by being his born of him, and therefore we, whether you like, happen, by the way, whether you happen to like uh, your such and such brethren of whatever other denomination or persuasion or 
if they are valid Orthodox Christians who could recite the Nicene Creed in good, in good faith and uh, are attempting by the grace of God to put their lifestyle behind that, they're your brothers. One, uh, one of the most tragic things in history, I, I read books from both the Catholic and the Protestant side of the Reformation, and frankly, it's unfortunate, but we Christians fight about some of the silliest peripheral issues there is, and it makes our witness in the earth impotent, because God is one. And a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. In fact, there's so much anti-Catholic feeling that we decided to change the word of the creed to universal because most people don't have enough vocabulary skills to know that Catholic means the whole church under Christ. And they think, are you guys Roman Catholic? And they've been so indoctrinated against Roman Catholicism that often when we get visitors, if they hear the word Catholic or they think anything in our service seems a little Catholic, we never get them to come back a second time when so many of the things that evangelicals do are not necessarily as rooted in the Bible as many things Catholics do. And what we should be about is restoring what the early church did in the scriptures, which includes reciting of creeds. Just a side note, no extra charge for that. Okay, so that's a freebie. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God is granted to Abraham by means of a promise. By the way, the real way covenants unfold in the scriptures, Hebrews 13, 20, talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. What we call the new covenant in the scriptures is the oldest covenant. It's the eternal covenant that the Godhead had between himself Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he would make a people that would rebel and that he would send his Son to perfectly obey the Father. The Son would come to perfectly obey the Father and to live a sinless, perfect life before the Father and then take all the judgment deserved on the human race on himself to, to be bar- died, to bury, to be risen again, and to offer newness of life to anyone who would trade their life for his. And this idea of praying a sinner's prayer just misses the whole point. What God is after is trading in your whole life. What we do is we kind of incrementally over 20 years give him eventually 10 or 20% of our life. No, God wants it all. And he died for it all. And there is no resurrected life until you fully say, God, I want to be conformed to your death. And I want, to, I want to enjoy your abundant life, your eternal life, the knowledge of God on the other side of that cross. And if it ever seems like ever since you made a commitment to Christ that he's trying to kill you, that's because he is. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> I got a couple laughs, but no amens on that one, right? You know, it's like, wait a minute. As I as I always say, as I always say, uh, I, my my uh, good good and dear brother Wayne, used, when we were young Christians, he used to always pray for trials, and I used to just say, Wayne, don't pray for trials. We already have enough of them already. Just pray for grace to thank God for the trials and to, and to embrace them and go through them. 
And uh, we used to laugh together, of course, about such things. So, you know, uh, God is trying to kill you because he's inviting you to the party of his resurrected life. He's inviting you to walk through the power of his spirit and, and leaning on his understanding in all your ways, not trusting yourself anymore. And, and the, our number one issue is we're control freaks. The serpent said, you shall be as God determining for yourself good from evil. And no matter, because God is infinite, even if you've read the Bible 10 times before you make your commitment to Christ, there's a certain element of signing on that dotted line and letting God fill it in as you go. Not that he doesn't know what it says already, but you can't understand what it says. There's an ultimate issue in, the, in part of your de death is, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. It's a trusting. I'm trusting that you're going to kill me in the proper way because I know you can also resurrect me. That's what Abraham, Hebrews 11, did when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. He trusted that God could raise the dead. So with that in mind, let's get into it. So much more, uh, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So as covenants unfold in the Bible, they never abrogate the previous covenant. They only fulfill it, and God gives us more. But nothing is ever, no, nothing is ever annulled. It's not like today there's a concept called antinomianism that's... Uh, Oh, maybe 90-some percent of evangelicals buy into that, that, that we're not under the law. Uh, well, we're not under the law in a certain sense. We're under grace, but Christ came. He can't abrogate the law. He didn't come to throw it out, he says in Matthew 5, 14 through 17. He came to put it into force. He came to take it from external stones that command your sinful nature so that you covet, lust, and do everything you're not supposed to do to give it, to make it the desires of your heart, to write it on your heart so that you want to do it from the spirit and attitude of it. So I hope that helps you because, again, the first covenant is that eternal covenant. That's the new covenant, and that's the covenant that the whole Bible is, is working to unfold. And what we call the Old Covenant is actually the Mosaic Covenant, which we'll look at here in this survey when we get to Exodus, uh, which will probably be next week, uh, unless I teach on fasting again next week. Um, Moses' covenant that God gave him was after the covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, and it doesn't nullify any of those. And the covenant that God calls us into as sons of Abraham was given before there was the giving of the law. And what we call the Old Testament is actually from Exodus 19 to Malachi. Uh, so it would be actually better to call what we call the Old Testament the Hebrew Scriptures. It'd be more biblically accurate. All right, now let's get into this. Uh, in Genesis 1, I hope you're all familiar with Genesis 1. Uh, God begins to make covenant. And as you remember last week, we talked about Susan's covenants. So when God makes covenant, he just declares what the covenant is. You can't alter it. That's 
most Christians have a problem where they're constantly trying to renegotiate or alter. Forget it. <laughs> you can't. Okay? There's either covenant blessings for accepting and following the fullness of the covenant, or there's covenant curses for not re receiving the covenant. But you can't always keep renegotiating re it and making it how it, you would like it to be. So God starts by just saying, then God said. And he begins to create the principles, spiritual and physical, of the universe. And when he says, let there be light, he's, God's word is ongoing. So he, he created a situation where light will continue to unfold unless there's something that he hasn't revealed to us in Scripture that someday he's going to say stop, but it doesn't seem like it. So the universe is unfolding, and there are more and more stars and suns being created, and that's we, the scientists would have discovered that long ago had they taken the Bible seriously. They now have discovered that. Because they, like us, have to learn so many lessons the hard way. <laughs> so, um, so God creates uh, the whole earth, and he creates principles in it. One of the most important principles he creates is, and then he repeats it uh, four times, uh, he creates, he creates um, the, the vegetation with seed bringing forth fruit after its own kind. He creates the fish of the sea with seed bringing forth fruit after their own kind. He creates the animals on dry land with seed bringing forth fruit after their own kind. He creates man and woman with seed bringing forth fruit after their own kind. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth is, is given to the whole creation, and every seed brings forth its own kind. The most That's why I constantly say, if you understand God at all, if your Christianity has gotten out of the, any, taken a couple steps out of the realm of religious unreality toward reality and truth, as Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you, as, you, as you begin to encounter Christ, the first thing you understand is the most important part of being in a Christian community, of being called by God, of being a husband, of being a, whatever you're called to be, a lawyer or whatever, is what kind of seed is in me. Your character is the number one determinative fact for how for your ministry. People go, why, you know, why do you invest hours in people and discipling and Bible studies and teaching and so forth when you know you could get billboards and you can have a marketing campaign and you could water down the message and you could have hundreds of people in the pews because that really isn't gonna ever cut it. You know, in the Bible, God many times tells, you remember with the whole Shibboleth thing and everything, you say, you, you know, you got too many people. <laughs> that totally goes against the modern marketing spirit, but it's better off to have a mustard seed of the real thing. You don't need more faith. You need a little bit of the real thing. And you don't need more disciples. What we need is by the grace of God to somehow become real disciples. That's really the challenge before us that I'm still seeking. And we, you should always be seeking that first and foremost. That has to do with your ministry to God. And if you constantly go forward in that area, as Peter says, 
if you if you have these seven character qualities that he lists and you're increasing in these, it'll re- render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the things of the kingdom. Most Christians have never led people to the Christ. They've never discipled anyone. And that's really kind of okay for your, you know, for your first three and a half or four years as a Christian. That's not okay if you've been hanging around the church for for quite a few years. It really isn't. Follow me and you'll be a fisher of men, Jesus said. So all this principle starts to go into into Genesis, right? And the most important principle is that God creates. Therefore, only God can bring new creation. And that God brings forth everything according according to what kind of seed is in it. Remember when he rebukes the Pharisees and he says, Woe are you because you travel all to the ends of the earth to make one proselyte or convert, and then when you have, you turn him into twice as much a son of hell as you are. The reason many of you have had Brother Greg sitting on the back porch or wherever pleading with you to go deeper in Christ, to study, to to let God sanctify you, to to submit to the brokenness that he wants to bring in your life or whatever, is because I know God wants to make you fruitful. What I'm concerned about is what kind of fruit we are. Is that, I hope that makes sense. Now, some things you need to know about Genesis 1. A uh, couple words that we've been discussing on Thursday nights, mythopoeic cosmogenic literature. Now, that's not as big a words as it might sound. Everyone knows what a myth is, a, a story that tells a, has a, a purpose or whatever, a lesson, but it's not necessarily true. Peak is the uh, root word of poetry or polemic. It means So it means a story with a lesson, a story with a moral, story that has explanations. Those explanations explanations are cosmogenic. That is, cosmos means order, genos means birth. So those are some big words. It just means stories that tell why we're here, what it's about, how it all started, and what's where's it going. Now, every culture has those. And in the ancient cultures, they were very humanistic. Uh, they were very polytheistic. And there was no idea yet that had emerged that it was important that it be scientific or that it be historically accurate or anything like that. So there were stories with explanations. And those explanations were evolutionary. And they began with the concept of chaos. And that gradually out of chaos, something was causing a cosmos or order to emerge. So the Egyptian ones were very much, if you study Osiris and Iris and all the Egyptian mythology, you know, the, in the beginning was this water. Water is a universal symbol of chaos. And out of it gradually became a silt, and that became an island, very similar to Darwin. And out of it came a cow. And everybody laughs in modern times because we've been brainwashed to believe that's somehow less fantastic than out of it came a single cell. But if you understand the complexities of a single cell, those are both both equally astounding. If your faith, if you are a, a materialist, an evolutionist, 
your faith is, is that, that chaos gave birth to order, that in, in, inorganic matter was eternal, it had, that matter had no beginning despite the law of second, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, and that matter is increasingly breaking down into less and harnessable forms and becoming basically light or heat or something unseen. But somehow matter is eternal, but it hasn't all decayed. And then out of that spontaneously generated life. And that life had millions of complexities at the moment of its creation. Or at the moment, and if you're an evolutionist, the moment of its fortuitous occurrence. So when the Bible, the Bible basically takes the forms of ancient literature and purposely slaps them in the face with Genesis 1. It turns everything the ancient cultures believed on its head. And it says, in the beginning, God. You got to stop right there and think. In the beginning, the eternal one, the, the perfect community, the triune one God uh, existed from all eternity. And, on, and as Hebrews tells us, by faith, we understand that the world was created out of nothing, that God made the material world and that order produced order. And then he creates life out of nothing. You know, his, the answer for a fortuitous, spontaneous generation is that God started life. And that, uh, all of Genesis 1 is a complete turning upside down of the Babylonian myths, of the Egyptian myths, of, uh, of the later Greek myths, and so forth. He, they, it turns the ancient world on its head as God always is doing. You're either of the people of God, the people of light who see it correctly, or you're of the people of darkness who can't see it. Then God creates in this, in Genesis, the, the, the first garden temple. His will is thy kingdom come, I, uh, thy will be done. So he takes the perfection of heaven and creates a garden called Eden. And in it, there's no imperfections. There's no sin, there's no death. And man is to be fruitful and multiply and export that per perfectness of his relationship with God. God comes to fellowship man in the cool of the day. And uh, as Genesis 3 reveals, and he man is to export that wonderful priesthood, that wonderful vice regency, that dominion under God. Man is to serve the world. We can't even imagine a world like that because in that world, what the greatest was is to be a servant. We're all in a, the reason we're in Christian community and we fast and we pray and we read the Bible and so forth is because we're so infected with something else about leadership and we're trying to understand that we have to become the servant if we want to be great. And we're asking God to sanctify us unto that. Sanctify us so that we really don't care if we get any recognition or not for what contributions we made. We all struggle with that, right? 
all of us have things that go off. Well, gee, I, I helped uh, shovel the snow and no one mentioned me, or I helped make the chili, or I, whatever. You know, we all, we all do that. I struggle with that. I have to take that before the Lord all the time. One of the things that scares the heck out of me about the marketing of, of Christianity and the radio and TV people and all that is that the, 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 the essence of man's evil heart is let us make a name for ourselves. Wouldn't it be awesome if people wrote Christian books and published them anonymously? <laughs> uh, that would be awesome. So... The garden temple comes into to, uh, Eden, and God tells them, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, seed bearing forth fruit after its own kind. More, man becomes the crown of God's creation, the Imago Dei, uh, and, and he's given vice regency to name. Name doesn't mean, uh, name to name the animals means to zoologically classify them, to study them. He was the first scientific man. With uh, didn't have as much brain deterioration as has happened in the genetic pool over the centuries, so he was probably a lot more brilliant than any man we've known. That that seed of DNA and so forth is still in there, so despite the deterioration of the gene pool, every once in a while, you know, an Albert Einstein pops out. But but Adam was more than an Albert Einstein. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. So the Adamic covenant, if we were to go through it, contains all the seven elements. I didn't allocate my time well enough to do that, so you can do that. Read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and look for all seven of these elements. You'll find them all. Because uh, I may be only going to get through Adam today. I We'll see. Yeah, it's not looking good. Um <laughs> So Adam is called to do this thing. And in Genesis 3, he's derelict in his duty. And his wife is off in some other end of the garden. And he's not covering or protecting her. He's doing his thing. Or whatever. And this serpent begins to tempt Eve with the same, if you were, Compare her temptations to, to Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 to what First John, John calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. They're exactly the same issues as First John chapter 2 gives us. And uh, he says, first of all, he doubts the character of God. God always, Satan will always first doubt the character of God. And because God, all covenants have hierarchy, the doubt will also go against the, the hierarchy of God in your life. Oh, your pastor doesn't really listen to you. He doesn't understand you. Your boss is unfair. You know what? Your boss may be unfair, but the first thing you have to do is say, is this a cross that God has given me to, to die through? See, our whole culture, everyone's like whispering behind the scenes and saying bad things about the company and about the boss and, and you know, biting, which is, you know, if you understand the idea of corporation, a corporation is a body. So when you, when you buy into that, you're actually destroying the hand that feeds you. 
and and uh, and there were you know I I don't want to get into social Darwinism and the rise of uh, the rise of exploitative capitalism instead of Judeo Christian free enterprise, but uh, there there is injustice and and it does need to be addressed and so forth in the workplace, but first and foremost, you know. Ask it, did God give me that difficult roommate for a purpose? And am I supposed to submit to something here? You know what? Hus- you know, there's a kind of a misteaching in Christianity that says because husbands are called to be the head of the family that they can dominate or use or abuse their wife. You cannot. You are called to love your wife sacrificially as, Adam, as, as Christ loved the church, coming to serve and to die, to wash her feet. And if you study it out in the Bible, you'll see this. There, are many, there is many a man in the Bible, starting with uh, Adam, Abraham, etc., who listens to their wife, and it causes them to be destroyed because their wife wasn't speaking from God. And there's many a man who does not listen to their wife and does and rejects her counsel when she's speaking from God, and that destroys their life. So, husbands, you have a great responsibility. If your wife is saying something that's causing you to lay down your life, be less fleshly, be less immature, be less kind, uh, less abusive, be more kind, whatever, and you don't hear it, woe is you. And if she's saying, curse God and die like Job's wife, don't listen to that one. (laughs) But most people want to have covenants of the flesh in our culture. We want roommates that will challenge us less. People seek out friends that will challenge them less. We like people who let us be whatever wickedness we want to be. But God puts you in Christian community to kill you <laughs> and to, to liberate you to be fully who you are intended to be with no slavery to man. Sometimes people just miss those obvious things. Like if th- something is causing you to submit to ungodly men, even children, and you know, Ephesians 6 1, Paul makes it very clear children, obey your parents in the Lord. If, if your parents are calling you to do something ir- ungodly, you're not to submit to that. Especially if you're past their, you know, 12 or 14 years old. You're to go forward into the purposes of Christ in your life, which they're good. I, I'm so glad my first pastor was a Jewish guy who went to church every Sunday, and when he got home, he, his parents, his dad, beat him. Severely. And he still went the next week. And if his dad caught him reading his Bible up in the hayloft, he would confiscate the Bible and he'd go to the church the next Sunday and say, I'm sorry, I've lost another Bible. Is it okay if I have another Bible? Because I need to grow in God's Word. And every time he got caught reading the Bible, he got a beating, but that didn't keep him from reading the Bible. No man has a right to tell you not to walk forward with the holiness and integrity and the worship of God. Be right with God before you're right with anybody else. So Adam and Eve, they get into this situation where 
again, I'll, I'll just end with Adam Need, of course, today, but I'll try to get through at least that. You know, he, they were given uh, a, some of the oaths and sanctions were that you're not supposed to eat from this tree. That was the law, the covenant law. Going back to those seven things, that was the, you know, the vows and the ethical laws. And they were told that the sanction would be in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Now, we all know that they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually, which eventually brings physical death. And ever since then, the serpent has been saying the same thing. You shall surely not die. Modern science, man's efforts will eventually conquer death. It's, you know, all the Star Wars kinds of movies have that theme. And, you know, uh, that's why people, you know, spend millions of dollars for cryogenics. They actually think that someday there will be no death. <laughs> and uh, that is not what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And that's not what the original sanction of the covenant was, was it? So, again, the serpent questions God's character. Then he questions God's word and the authority of it. So he basically says, God is lying, and you should trust in science. And then when the woman saw empirical science, she saw that the food was a delight to the eyes, uh, good to the taste, and desirable to make one wise, she ate. And, and that's been the battle of every human being ever since. Are you going to trust you? Are you going to be as God yourself? You know, if we preach this kind of kingdom message... We, you know, so many times I, I'm asked to give guidance to things that are really clear because God is your king. And you can't submit to something ungodly. Not, not in your finances, not in your sexual morality, not in your relationships, nothing. So... She eats, and man falls. And the Adamic kingdom and the Adamic covenant, the dominion covenant, is crushed in the earth. However, God comes in the cool of the day. He confronts Adam. He says, what have you done? Adam's trying to hide. You know, we're always trying to... Uh, yeah, you get this all the time. Uh, well, I don't want to, you know, people don't want to tell their sins or they don't. And, and, you know, it's so easy to see that in someone else, but not in ourselves. You know, it really is. Um, you know, and, you know, your you're, you're, people find out you're a Christian and they try to hide out that they're smoking marijuana or that they did some unethical thing financially. Don't tell the Christians, that, you know. It's so easy to see that, but Adam and Eve hide for the first time. Before they were naked, which means fully vulnerable and not ashamed. Now we have to start hiding from one another. 
And they put fig leaves, which, which is representative in the Bible. Plants are representative of that which comes from the earth and the ground. They try to cover themselves with man-made coverings. God confronts them. I love the beginning of blame shifting. Adam blames his wife, right? <laughs> Men have been doing that ever since, right? The woman, and then he ultimately says, by the way, you gave her to me. He blames God, right? And then he, God asked the woman her opinion, and she blames the serpent. And the serpent was like, hey, I'll take the credit. <laughs> you know? uh, but so God offers the Genesis 3.15 is what the, the theologians call the proto-evangelium, where God promises that there are, that the eternal covenant will be coming. And he slays an animal. He covers them with skins, so he has to kill the animal. Speaking of there, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, right? Uh, which is, we'll get into Cain and Abel next week, but that's the difference between Cain and Abel. And uh, he, he uh, takes them away from the tree of life, puts a guard on the garden so they can't get back to the tree of life, and we will eventually get back to the tree of life in Christ in future chapters. And uh, he escorts them out of the garden. And everything is changed. That's the beginning of codependency, which is called relational idolatry. Though, because Adam actually, he knew that Eve's nature was changed. He didn't want to lose her. He chose her in allegiance to her over God. because he didn't want to lose her. He didn't trust that God could redeem her or God could solve the problem somehow. He started becoming a control freak and solved the problem himself. So, um, we will pick up next week with uh, the falling of, after the Adamic covenant, here's what you need to understand that Genesis 3.15 is saying. God was not surprised. He was not off guard, caught off guard. It was all part of his eternal plan, and it didn't mute anything that he had said in Genesis 1. He was going to bring the fulfillment of all of that eventually through one regal head and a body of people born of that regal head that would be so powerfully filled with the Spirit that they would form communities of his family all over the earth and liberate their earth for for his glory.